Thanks so much, Mal. Hey, good morning, everybody. It's great to be here again uh, this morning. Uh, such a privilege uh, to be a part of the team here at Ellerslie and the great things that are happening. You know, we think about the fall. We think about adding our second service. We think about having to try to restructure some of our times to create more space for people to come and be a part of our community. I, th I just think this is awesome. What a really, uh, what, a, what, a, what an exciting season this is in, um, in so many ways. Uh, as I was getting ready to, to come up uh, yesterday, of course, uh, as anybody does, I did. I, I checked the weather report on my way here just to kind of figure out, okay, what should I be bringing? What should I be wearing? How, you know, what's it going to look like? I will acknowledge it's a little wetter here right now than it is in Kelowna. So that is true. That's shifting. But overall, actually not bad and, uh, and, and actually pretty fine. Now, I haven't always had like a great weather experience when I've come to Edmonton. In fact, um, some of you who have been around for a long time will remember uh, in the 80s when the tornado came through Edmonton. I don't know if, you know, in the late 80s and did real damage. And, and I remember being around here at that time and, in fact, coming to the city right after it and being really concerned about, you know, being involved in that type of a situation again. Uh, and, and there was some baggage for me because when I grew up in, in Elkhorn, Manitoba, we would often, in the summers, have those types of weather patterns that would happen. And so especially if it was really humid outside, which we would have at times um, in the summer, I would often find myself, you know, kind of trying to figure out uh, what was happening with the weather or what was coming. And I remember some of the days when I'd be watching TV and then across the bottom of the screen, because we, we couldn't go online, of course, to check what the weather was at that time, but across the bottom of the screen would come a warning, tornado watch or bad weather. And I remember um, the fear that would start to rise up in me, the anxiety that would begin to form. I remember I would have this desire to, you know, kind of shrink back. So we lived out in the country. We had a two-story home and we knew exactly in the basement where we would go when the bad weather would come. We had a corner, there was no windows. And so we kind of, we had all these plans together. And, and so this kind of became ingrained in me, these responses to this type of a weather uh, situation. I'll never forget um, the day when I saw my first tornado coming at our home, actually. And uh, my dad all of a sudden went running out of the house and, uh, and he said, Sid, come help me. And we were running around trying to get some of the wood that was around our home. Dad was renovating on our home, and we were trying to put stuff to, uh, put stuff away and cover it up and get some weight on it. And then also my dad said, look, there. And coming right across the field was this, this funnel cloud that was coming towards us. And I remember just being terrified, and I turned, and I ran into my home. And then as I'm trying to get into the house, I turn around, and because I'm looking for my dad, and there's my father. And he's standing in the middle of the yard as the wind is beginning to blow. And he's like, yeah. And I just remember thinking to myself, my dad is crazy. <laughs> like there's something not right about him, you know. And then it, and it was really interesting. My, my dad had this fascinating impulse within him that whenever the storms would, the storms would kind of come, while I tended to move away, he tended to move in. And I remember one time I just, I kind of said, Dad, why do, you, why do you do that? And he just said, you know, son, it just reminds me of the power of the God that we have. And that we have a God who is more powerful than us, and I sit in his presence. And that's where I feel him. I thought, that's weird. I just thought, that's really weird. I don't, I don't experience that at all in any way, shape, or form. All I see is evil, and I'm out of here. You know, um, there's, a, there, there's this... There's this real sense within us when these tsunami comes that we are helpless, at least in most of us. Maybe not my dad, but most of us. 
And I think especially um, within our culture and our world, sometimes we feel that as well. And we're not speaking so much about weather patterns, but we're speaking maybe of patterns of, of values, of, of patterns of the ways that people treat each other and interact with each other, patterns of the way that our world seems to go. And you know, especially with this awareness in terms of the news, and especially within environments where people can shape what we hear or see happening in the world, and oftentimes we tend to shape that towards things that are maybe not as pleasant as others, because that kind of news seems to sell. I think if you're like me, you often find yourself functioning in, in moments of anxiety or fear or even with just this desire to run away. And, and, it, and it seems that there's this type of fear that in many ways is, is gripping our culture and sometimes the next generation. In fact, it's not just within faith environments where we hear people talking about this idea of, you know, should we have children because what kind of a world are we bringing them into and what will their experience be? And this, these questions and conversations are indicative of a type of fear and sense of helplessness and out of control that many of us, many of us feel. Now, as followers of Christ... You know, when we live, when we look at the kind of context that God has called us into, and you know, this is, this is a unique um, time actually in the season, right? We're looking to the fall and the fall is very exciting for many of us, new beginnings, new things to head into. But sometimes for those of us who are parents in particular, perhaps, as we send our kids out into new environments, it's not always quite as exciting, correct? So, you know, um, in our family, We've raised our kids in, you know, like kind of every different possible environment you can imagine when it comes to education. So we've done homeschooling, we've done public schooling, we've done Christian schooling, we've done no schooling, you know, like we, every type of schooling you can imagine, we have done that type of schooling. Well, this year we're, we're kind of in a, one of these unique spaces. So our son Cole is heading into grade 10, and for the last five years he's been in a Christian school environment. Now, for many of us, you know, we think of the Christian school environment as a place where we get to protect our children, correct? And if we're really honest with ourselves, we, we have to come to grips with the reality that there is no such thing as an environment that is fully protected. As long as people like myself, someone who is sinful and broken, is a part of these environments, they're not fully protected, right? We all, we have struggles. This is the reality. We love the values that are present there in general, but there's no such thing as an absolutely safe space when we think about that, but there are some spaces spaces that seem safer than others. Well, for us this year, we're moving out of that space with our son. So Cole um, loves basketball, and so this year he's moving to a different high school so that he can engage in, in basketball in a different way, and it's like he's moving from a small school to a very big school. He's moving from a place where teachers share the same values that we as a family share into a place where teachers share other values. He's moving from a space where we kind of know our core families that we spend time with and share those similar values into a place where we don't know the core families around Cole. We don't know what values they share. And as we move into this kind of a season, I'm going to be honest with you. There's a little bit of fear, a little bit of anxiety. I have to fight the impulse to want to kind of gather and pull back and just, you know, kind of control. And so we're working through some of these situations, even with our own life. I talk to my young adults. My son's heading off to college this fall. And some of our young adults, some of you guys are heading into environments again that are different from what you found yourself in. And they're places that have new sets of values and different communities and ways of being. And, and we find this thing, you know, there's these times of there's this type of anxiety and
In fact, when we read the scriptures, we begin to understand so clearly that anxiety and fear is actually not the way of the king. Isn't that true? Constantly throughout the scriptures, we hear God or Jesus speaking about this idea that we don't need to allow anxiety to control us, that he calls us to be courageous and bold and move forward. It's not of the king and it's not the kingdom way that we would be. So then the question I begin to ask myself, as I begin to really understand, you know, what's taking place in our world, what are the values of the communities that we are engaging in, and I begin to see that they're different from many of the values that I long for my kids to experience and have and the values that I want to drive and, and define my life. How do I position myself then with the culture and the world that we find ourselves in? This morning, we're going to take a look at John chapter 17. We're going to look at verses 13 to 19 here really quick as we move through the passage. And just to set the stage, um, you know, this is coming to the very end of Jesus' life as he's about to leave his disciples. He's been modeling a way of living for them, and he's been living with them. And in some ways, he's kind of like sending them out. Like he's going to be moving from them, um, and they're going to be out uh, doing their thing without his physical presence. And so he begins to paint the way that he would have them interact with the world or the culture that they find themselves in. And, and when we look in John 17, specifically from 13 through 19, we see really clearly that he is not calling us to positions of fear or anxiety. Instead, he's actually calling us to courage and boldness. He's asking us to actually engage, to actually live in the culture where we find ourselves. And this is the answer. When I think about how do we respond to the cultural tsunami of our world, the place that we find ourselves in, the answer that Christ gives us is, hey, we live in it. Because of Christ, we don't run from it. Because of Christ, we don't have to be afraid of it. But because of Christ, we live in it. As his followers, he calls us to live in it. Listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 17 as he's praying for his disciples. He says this, But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Did you hear that? So this is like the end of Christ's time with his disciples. He's clearly letting them know that he's about to leave them. He's going to the cross. He's going to die on the cross. Of course, he's going to rise again, but then he's going to go to heaven. Spirit's going to come, be with us, okay? So it's clearly that there's a change in the way that he's relating there. It's, that's clear. But what he says to them as he's about to leave is he says, hey, I'm telling you these things so you can have joy. Even in the midst of this time that I'm calling you to, I want you to have joy. There's a sense of hope. There's a sense of expectation. Even as you live as foreigners and aliens in a different place, there's this joy that I'm calling you to. He says to have my joy fulfilled in themselves. And then he says, I've given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Okay, so um, as I'm thinking about this passage and I'm thinking, okay, how does this apply? Let me just, let me out front kind of uh, create kind of a, a context or disposition towards it. I think for those of us who are older and adults, I think um, for me, this passage is sometimes a confrontation. 
Do you know what I mean? Like I can kind of control my spaces and my environments and the way that I emotionally interact with others. And this passage has become a confrontation to me to say, hey, Sid, you need to be engaged. So get yourself engaged and look for ways to engage others, to engage our culture in a redemptive way. And by redemptive, by the way, and I know that, hey, if, if you're here new to our community, which we hope we have many people come that are new to our community, you'll sometimes hear us say words or do things that are maybe somewhat foreign to you. Thank you so much for putting up with us. I think that's really awesome. And if there's things that you hear that you kind of go, I don't understand that, or Ooh, that might even be a little offensive to me, please make sure you come and talk to us. And, and we'd love to like process this. This is why it's great to invite us in. But when we use the word redemptive. It's this idea of making things right or whole or new or the way they were supposed to be. And so this is a confrontation to me that I would enter into the world in a redemptive way. Someone who's looking to make things right or new or whole, not just a combative way. So I'm trying to change my disposition. For those of us who are parents with kids, you know, and we're trying to figure out how do we journey with our children in the world where we find ourselves in. I want to say to you that I think this should maybe be a challenge, that we ask ourselves, what kind of a disposition are we placing in our children in terms of how they should see the world and interact with it? Do you know what I mean? And what am I modeling for them in that way? And so there's a kind of a challenge there. And then for those of you who are young adults and you're, um, you know, you're moving into college or university or the workforce, um, I want you to experience this as actually a calling, a way of being, that God is saying to you, hey, I have a missional purpose for you, and your life counts and matters wherever you are, and I'm calling you in. Okay, so these are kind of the, the, the ways that I'm seeing and trying to process through the passage. Okay, so how do we do this? How do we actually live in this world, especially when we begin to understand that, that, that much of the world is functioning according to different values than, than, what, than what we function according to? Here's the first way. Number one, I think we live joyfully in the midst of the world. That, that we are a part of the world, that we see this in one sense as a place that we are called to, that we have a responsibility for. Now, the problem with that is that when we really understand lots of the things that are happening in our world, it, it feels a little bit dangerous to actually embed in the culture or embed in the world. And as I said, we don't naturally move towards danger. Um, I have a friend, his name is, is Fred, and, and Fred's been with us at the camp for the last number of years, and we just went out with supper with him before, um, before I came up yesterday. Fred lives in Grand Prairie. Um, uh, one of the things I realized about Fred is Fred loves adventure, and Fred's definition of adventure is often very different than my definition of adventure. Most of my adventure is exciting but safe. Fred doesn't really care that much about safety. I'm going to be honest with you. So we were up with Fred the other day, and, um, or in June, and Fred wakes up in the morning and goes, hey, Sid, do you want to go kayaking? I'm like, uh, sure, sounds like fun. He goes, oh, great. I saw this river that I've never been on before, but I thought it'd be really cool if we kayaked it. So we hopped into his helicopter, because everyone has a helicopter, and we, we choppered up to this river and landed on the banks, and then my wife and I got out. We pulled these kayaks out. We filled them up, jumped into the river, and I thought, oh, this will be a nice float. And within the first 15 to 20 seconds, I realized there is no floating involved in this river. This is, a, this is white water rafting that we are now involved in, and neither myself nor Fred has any training in this sport. And so I'm the very, you know, the first 15 seconds, I work my way around a rock, which I think is about to kill me. And then we kind of set 
little bit. I think this is okay. If I just keep this thing pointed forward, we're going to make it. Many of the waves are like higher than our kayaks. And so we're really moving through. About 30 minutes in, my wife gets caught in one of the rapids. Boom, she's over and pow, she's out of a raft. So now we're scrambling. We're trying to get our raft to the side. I'm trying to grab that raft. I'm trying to grab my wife. That's for the wind. I get her. We pull her over and we sit for a second. I go, you okay, babe? And she looks and goes, yeah, I think I'm okay. And she goes, I'm not freezing yet because it's a glacier fed river, by the way. Thank you very much. No one told us that either. She goes, I'm not quite dead yet. I think I'm warm. If we just keep going, we should be okay. I'm like, oh, awesome. Okay. So we get back in. Boom. We start going again. 10 minutes later, bam, come around the corner. Jen is caught on a rock in the middle of the river. The waves are pounding her and she's about to roll again. Finally, we get her out. We get her to the shore and things aren't good. We're starting to go kind of hypothermic a little bit. And I turn to Fred and I say, Fred, you need to save us. Like time for you to save us. So we build a fire. Fred gets in his kayak and he goes, well, I'm going to go and here's hoping I come back. And so away he goes. And we're in like, we're in a crevasse. We don't have any cell service. This is, by the way, this is a true story right now. And I am not exaggerating at all. So we build a fire. He takes off in his kayak and we start sitting there. And I'm thinking, I wonder if he's going to come back. Awesome. Sure enough, an hour and a half later, I hear this boop, 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 and there's Fred with his helicopter, lands on a sandbar. We risk our lives by walking across the frozen river into the helicopter, and we're rescued just like that. And for Fred, he's like, what a great adventure. And I'm like, we almost died, okay? So I don't naturally move in this direction. Danger isn't where I go. You know, um, Christ never... Christ never tries to hide the fact that what He calls us to is dangerous. Do you know what I mean? It actually is dangerous what we're called to. When we're called to live in this world, we're called to enter space that that in ways are dangerous. And listen to what he says here. He says, um, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. He acknowledges that, that evil exists and it is real. And not only does evil exist, but the evil one exists. And, and he is actively opposed to Christ and his way. This is true. You know, when we take a look in the scriptures, it is true that the evil one exists. And he is active and working. It says in 1 Peter 5, 8, he says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to, de- to devour. It's true. The evil one is at work, and he wants us to die. He wants us to die spiritually, relationally, Physically, emotionally, when, when relationships break up, the evil one celebrates because he's won. When anxiety begins to control us, the brokenness of our world is at work, the evil one rejoices because he is winning. When our bodies break down and begin to shut down because we weren't originally created for death, the evil one rejoices because he's winning. The evil one is real and he's not our friend. And the Bible says that he is a liar and he works to lie to us. He says, he's the father is the devil. Your will is to do the father's desires. It says when he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar, the father of lies. He's a tempter. He wants to come and tempt us to walk away from trusting Jesus and following his ways. Sometimes he tempts us to deny our faith with pain. Sometimes he tempts us to deny our faith with pleasure and relief. He's a tempter. He's an accuser. He speaks to us of things that, that uh, embed themselves in us and give us identities. He says things like we're useless and have nothing to offer, that we can't be forgiven, that we can't be loved. He accuses us 
Revelation 12 says, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of this Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. This is who he is. Evil is real. The evil one is real. And he is against us, and this is dangerous, but here is what we know. That while he is real, so is Christ. And the evil one is not the opposite of Christ. Correct? We sometimes think that, don't we? That the evil one is equal and opposite to Jesus Christ, but that's not true. The evil one is a created being. Christ is the creator. The evil one is present. Christ is omnipresent. The evil one has power. Christ has unlimited power. He is not equal and he is not the same. Christ is in control, and the evil one ultimately is not in control. Christ is in control, and he has defeated the evil one. Colossians 1.13 says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sin. My friends, the evil one is real, but he is nothing compared to Christ. And Christ is for us. So then how do we respond when we understand that there is evil and the evil one in our world? Well, the way that we respond is not by engaging the evil one, but by engaging our God. We continue to lean into Christ and we continue to lean into His way. We submit and surrender ourselves to Him and He works in us and works through us. James 4, 7 to 10 says, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord. He will exalt you. And as we humble ourselves before Christ, he guards, he protects, and he gives us life. Christ is at work protecting us so we can live joyfully in the midst of the world. So first, we live in the world. The second way we respond to the tsunami and the values of the world is we live differently than the world. So listen to what Christ goes on and he says, he says, I've given them your word. The world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. I do not ask that, they, that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. And then in verse 16, he says, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. And in verse 19, he says, And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in the truth. That, that phrase, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. That's, a, that's an interesting phrase, especially for um, people that love to be accepted, I'll tell you. This is, I mean, this is uh, one of the things that I long for more than anything else is to be accepted, to be a part of the community. I remember when I was working at Moxie's um, in, in college as a server, and just entering into that environment and just longing to be a part of the environment, longing to be a part of the community there. And of course, right away is when I got there, one of our managers, and I may have mentioned this story before, he had, he had seen me when I used to work with Christian Athletes Hockey Camps. He had been uh, one of the people that were serving food at the camp. And, um, and as soon as he saw me walk in, he walked right up to me and goes, hey, what are you doing here, Christian hockey man? And it was this statement of, you are not one of us. That was the statement he made. And I remember for the first couple of weeks as I was working there, all I was thinking about was how can I become one of us? How can I become one of us? Where can I fit in? How can I be the same? And then all of a sudden it hit me. And I just felt like God said, you are not the same. You are not the same. You are different. 
at the very core of who you are, you are different. In fact, in 1 Peter, when Peter talks about those of us who choose to follow Christ in our world, he says you are aliens and you are strangers. You're embedded here, you are living here, but your values are of a very different nature than the values of this world. We, we, are, we are a different type of people. We, we function according to a different way. Um, when, when, when Christ says here, sanctify them by the truth, that word sanctify, another word would be holy. It has this idea of being set apart for something, to something, where we are, where we are at the very core of our being, something different than the space that we find ourselves in right here, right now. You know, it's interesting to me. I think oftentimes when we think about being set apart, we think about simply living differently. And it's true. If we really understand who we are and our values are different, if we are not of the culture that we find ourselves in, we will live differently. But when Jesus talks about being holy or set aside, it's more than just living differently. It's about being set aside to God that our lives belong to Him, that we are fully submitted over to Him. In fact, when He talks about being holy, He's talking about being so completely committed to Christ and His way that all other concerns are ditched in comparison to that. It doesn't even compare. That when we become holy, when we become set apart, we are so set apart to Christ that we say, whatever you want, I'm in. My life is completely yours. I want to rule totally differently. It's not just being set apart to Him, it's being set apart for Him. It's saying, I want to do your mission and your work, that what you want for me, I trust because you have created me and because you love me, that your plan is good for me, so I'm set apart for you. And then finally, what it means, it means that we, that we acknowledge that we have been set apart by Him, that we don't actually change ourselves but Christ is actually changing us. You, you, you know that, that Christ has got a hold of your life when the things that He wants you to do, when the things that you ought to do become the things you really want to do. Do you know what I mean? I remember when my boys were small and they were playing with their toys and Cole came and grabbed one of his brother's toys and his brother kind of pushed him. And I said to him, I said, Peyton, I need you to share with your brother. That's what I want you to do. And Peyton looked at me and goes, fine. And he threw his toy at his brother. Boom, hit him with the toy. He goes, fine, I'm sharing. And I remember thinking to myself, you're sharing, but you're not actually doing what I want you to do, right? Because I don't just want your actions. I actually want your heart. I want you to want to do what you ought to do. And when we become set apart by Christ, His ways become our ways. We begin to want to do what we ought to do. This is freedom. And He designs us for this freedom, and we lean into this. And it's not simply about what we do. It's about who He is. We're called to be holy. We're called to be different. And listen to what he says in verse 19. He says, For their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. This is his passion. Christ has given himself so that we could be set apart, so that we could experience the life the way he's called us to, so that we could engage the life that he's calling us to. This is his plan for us. This is what he is fully invested in. It's through his death that he has come to give us new life, 
this new reality, taking away our old, placing the new. And then He continues to renew us day by day by the presence of His Holy Spirit and the work of His Word. Listen to what He says here. He says, sanctify them in the truth. Your Word is truth. And as we continue to lean into His Word and we continue to read His ways, Christ through His Word continues to renew and transform and recreate us as we continue to follow Him. This is His call, that we would be different. My friends, we don't fit, and we shouldn't fit. We are aliens, and we are strangers, and our lives are calling the world to a different way. We engage our communities, and we engage our space with a new type of culture. You know, when Jesus called people to follow Him, He said this funny phrase. He said it more than once in the Gospels. He said that that if you would hate your life, you would find your life. And I've often wondered, what does he mean by that, you know, we should hate our lives, right? That's an interesting phrase because, you know, we read in Philippians that we should be joyful always, that he's come to give us life, give it to abundantly. So I go, what does he mean that we would hate our lives? Here's what I think he means. I think what he means when we really begin to understand the way that he would have us live in our cultural context, that the values that drive the decisions we make would be so different from many of the values that drive the decisions people make within our culture, that people would look at us and our decision, they would say, why did you make that decision? Do you hate your life? That doesn't make any sense to me. But we would have such a different set of values in us that we would say, well, I guess if that's how you define life, maybe simply by doing whatever feels good. And Christ says, I want you to do what is good even when it doesn't feel good. Maybe by simply trying to get more and more stuff that whatever you see, you should gather and you should consume. And Christ says, well, I think you should actually give away more and more stuff. Maybe by, you know, when our culture says that you should have pride in your position and you should let people know how great you are. And Jesus says, well, actually, those positions are just an opportunity to serve others in more intentional ways. That's all it is. It's never been about you. It's been about Christ and others. That when these type of values begin to drive our decisions that we make, culture looks at us and they say, hey, why did you do that? Why did you... Why did you downsize and give so much of your money away? Like, do you hate your life? And we go, well, if that's how you define life, I guess I hate it. But I define life something in a really different way. My values are different. And, and this actually isn't hard work for me. This is actually something I want to do because Christ is so changing me. And when we begin to live that way, we begin to bring new cultural goods into our environments and we begin to renew and restore the communities we find ourselves in. And we are holy. We are holy, we are sanctified, and we are being sanctified because our lives aren't ours, they're Christ. So we live in the world, we live differently in the world, and then finally we live intentionally in the world. So listen to what he says, he says in verse 16, they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth, as you sent me into the world so I have sent them into the world. Did you hear that? We've been sent. We've all been sent. None of us are without eternal significance and purpose. Every single one of us has been sent. Now, sometimes it's hard for us to really grasp that. It is for me. You know, um, 
Right now, this week, uh, my son Cole is on a mission trip to Portland, and I'm super excited for him because I hope this mission trip will be an experience that helps shape and transforms his being and his way of seeing life, who he should be. And of course, Kyle's with a number of our students doing the same thing down in Mexico right now. They're doing a missions trip. Now, I think missions trips are awesome, but one of the dangers sometimes of missions trips is that we can see missions as simply an experience to engage in for a time, and then when it's over, we go back to normal life. Do you know what I mean? It's the same thing with like our missionaries, you know, people that we come in and celebrate because of the work they're doing elsewhere. So we have like missions weeks or mission Sundays. We do these things. We bring in missionaries to tell their stories. We give to missionaries. I think that's really great. And I love that. But sometimes one of the dangers of that is we begin to see missionaries as the radical other, right? Like they're the ones are the radical ones who are going to do the work. But the reality is, is that what Christ says is that, you know, if we're going to be Christians, then, then we're actually about missions, that, that there's actually no such thing as a Christian without mission, that this is actually what we are called to. We're called to mission. And the mission that he calls us to is the mission of, of bringing renewal, of bringing hope, of bringing life. And you see, here's what happens. When we become convinced of who Christ is, and we become convinced of the truth of Christ, that His way is the right way, then automatically we're going to go into mission. In fact, here's the truth, that you know you have met Jesus when your life is about mission. When there's an impulse within you to go and live His way and tell others about Him, that's a wonderful sign that you have had an authentic encounter with Jesus Christ. And in fact, for myself, when I find that kind of impulse fading, one of the things I do is I just kind of take an evaluation of myself and go, hey, how aware are you of Jesus these days? Hey, how embracing are you of His values and His way? Hey, is the truth changing you? Where are you at? Because when we really understand who Christ is, then we understand that there is nothing that compares to Him, and there is nothing that our world needs more than Christ. And so we continue to point people to Him in our actions and in our words. This is what we're called to. You know, and here's the wonderful thing about it. Whenever you look through the scriptures and Christ explicitly calls his people to mission, you know the one thing that he almost always includes with the call is the promise that he will be with us. Christ is at work. He is at work protecting us so we can live in the midst of the culture. He is at work transforming us so we can live different than our culture. And He is at work going before us so we can live intentionally in our culture and we can engage in the mission that He has called us to. Okay, so then really quickly, how do we, how do we respond to this? How do we, how, do we, how do we look to these next few weeks and go, okay, God, in light of your call, what do we do? Let me give you a couple thoughts. For those of us who are parents with, with kids, can I suggest to you that maybe we see our journey with our children uh, primarily as preparation rather than simply just as protection? Could we maybe see our way with our kids as saying, hey, we are preparing you to go and engage the culture in transformative ways? And I think for me, sometimes that's really hard because 
I feel like the culture and the environment I'm sending my kids into is so different than the culture I grew up in. Do you know what I mean? I mean, we didn't have anything like social media when I was growing up in my culture. And I'm asking myself the question, what does it look like to prepare my child to live redemptively within that type of an environment? You know, how do I even go about doing that? I'd rather just isolate and, and remove, and yet I think Christ is calling me to something more. Certainly we need to protect. Certainly there's age-appropriate ways of living and being, but ultimately my job is to prepare that my son will live differently. I hesitated in giving this illustration, but I thought, oh shoot, I'll throw it out there. I get to leave after the service is done anyways. Um, and, and we're going to be mature enough to kind of process. So I was thinking through, how, did, how do we work this out? I remember with my boys, you know, when they were in public school, and they started having health class around grade six and seven. That's a terrifying time for us as parents when health class starts coming up. Do you know what I mean? And so they would do health club and health class. And we made a decision with, uh, with our boys that we weren't going to remove them from quote-unquote health class. I mean, my thinking was... Uh, they may not get the information in the class, but they're going to get it online or they're going to get it with their, they're going to get the information somewhere. And so then I started thinking, what if I could help them process the information and show them a better way as we're going through the journey together? I mean, how cool would it be if I could actually work through this information when I'm with them as opposed to when you're simply by themselves with their friends? And so um, my boys weren't super excited about, you know, having conversations with their dad about their health class. I'm going to be honest with that, with you about that. But there is one thing my boys like. My boys like steak, actually. They're, you know, we were in Lethbridge for 11 years. They're good Alberta boys, so they like steak. So I thought, ooh, I could connect something they really like with something they don't like. And so uh, bear with me, and you could take this out of context and I get in trouble. But we started a um, sex and steak night in our home, okay? So this is what we did. Every time that our boys had health class in their school, I would do sex and steak with them. So I'd take them out for steak, and then we would sit down, and they would have to tell me what they learned in their health class, and then I would share with them what God's design was for sex and sexuality, and that just became the way that we started journeying with this. I never forget the day when my fun son finally turned to me and goes, Dad, you are so gross. You are way more explicit than our teacher. And so we started to kind of lose the joy of the sex and steak night. But as long as the steak was good, they continued to be there. We, you know, we often fail at this stuff, but we're trying. Do you know what I mean? And I think there just needs to be this mindset where we say we're not just about protection and certainly not isolation. We're about preparation. How do we journey with our kids in that? And number two, we need to help our kids and help our communities to develop a real missional disposition. And this isn't easy either, but what I think we need to do is we need to begin to see our activities and communities about more than just creating an identity for our children. You know what I mean? So my son loves basketball. I love basketball with him. I think sometimes I love the basketball more than my son does. That becomes really problematic. And, you know, he's been through a number of tryouts over the last spring, so he had an opportunity to travel with the with the provincial team, with the BC provincial team, which was cool. And we were at nationals in Fredericton two weeks ago. But was something funny happened while we were there. He got injured. And he couldn't play in the last game. And he couldn't play very well throughout the whole tournament. And I had to reflect on my emotions in me. Why was I so anxious? Why was I struggling with it? Why was I forcing? Well, because his basketball had kind of become my identity. And I had placed that on him that it would be his identity. 
And so it forced us to really ask the question, what is this activity about? And it changed the way we started to talk, that the activity wasn't actually about his identity. It began to be about him expressing his identity as a follower of a Christ on mission, right? And so his basketball was about leveraging this opportunity to actually radically love Jesus and radically love his friends. And I remember the moment two weeks ago when I get this phone call from him in the middle of the week at Nationals, and he's on speakerphone, and all of a sudden he's like, Dad, Dad. I'm like, what, son? He goes, How, why do we believe in God? I'm like, pardon me? He goes, why do we believe in God? And then I hear his buddies in the background laughing at him. They're going, like, yeah, Cole, ask him why we believe in God. And so there, and all of a sudden I was like, this is, I don't care if he never steps on the court again. This is who he is. This is why he's here. This is why we are anywhere. Our activities and our environments are simply opportunities to live out the identity that God has given us to be people of transformation in the culture He's placed us. And so we begin to give this missional disposition. It was really funny, we were reading some research on how do you pass on a desire to share your faith to others, to younger people. You know the number one way we do it? It's by modeling. In fact, here's what they found. When they did a survey across the U.S. about youth ministries that were really powerful and transforming lives, the ones that had adults that modeled that activity before kids were the most powerful in creating that sense of being in their kids. And it struck me, I realized that my kids had never seen me live my faith out with my peers or even talk about it. And so all of a sudden we started to talk about it. I said, hey boys, I got a buddy, he's struggling. God's calling me to love him. I want to point him to Jesus because Jesus will change him. Could you pray for me that dad would better kind of communicate with them? And they're like, that's weird. Okay. And so then, and then the next week I said, hey, I tried you guys. It just didn't really go well, but God's calling me to stay in it and love him. Could you keep praying for me? And also we began to try to create this missional disposition. So number one, we see our journey primarily as preparation, not protection. Number two, we develop a missional disposition. And then finally, number three, we grow our vision and love for Christ primarily through the Word. And we step into this. And we see the Word not as a set of morals or commandments, but we see it as a reflection of the person of Jesus Christ and His calling on our lives. And we ask that God would grow our vision of Jesus Christ, that we would truly meet with Him, because when we truly meet with Him and He begins to transform us, we can't help but share Him with others because we know it's the thing that we all need the most. And so we are changed because Christ is changing us and he's working in us to change others. So what do we do with this cultural tsunami that seems to be coming our way? We live in it. We live in it. Because of Christ, we know he is protecting us and so we joyfully live in it. Because of Christ, we know he is changing us and so we live differently than the culture that we find ourselves, but we live in it. Because of Christ, we know he is going before us. And so we engage missionally where he's placed us. We live in it. And as we live in it, not only is our culture shifted, but Christ transforms us as well. Let me pray. Father, I love you. Thank you so much for who you are. Thank you so much for your work in us. Uh, Father, there are many things within the environments that you have placed us that are hard, that are overwhelming are often scary, but Father, they are not overwhelming to you. You are not handcuffed by these places. In fact, we wouldn't be here unless you had a plan for us here. Our kids wouldn't be here unless you had a plan for them here. And so I pray that by your grace, 
we would boldly live into the environments that you have placed us. For your glory, for our joy, and for the love of others. In your name, amen. Let's stand and sing one more song together.